Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 26th November with me, Ian Welsh. Earlier this week, I spoke with Lord Deben, Chair of the UK's Climate Change Committee, the UK government's advisory body on climate matters. I asked him for his thoughts on the outcomes from COP26, the innovative solutions and deals that stood out, and how the momentum from Glasgow can be maintained. First up, though, is a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Global food and beverage giant PepsiCo has launched a new target of helping 50 million people have access to healthy and nutritious food by the end of the decade via its Food for Good program and extending its affordable nutrition product range. The latter is part of the company's Pep Plus PepsiCo positive strategy, which was launched earlier in the year as an umbrella initiative covering ingredient sourcing, product production and retail, and engaging consumers through brands. The Food for Good initiative had been targeting nutrition in children in the US, but will now be rolled out worldwide, investing in solutions that increase access to nutritious food and targeting incomes for smallholder growers. Some new research led by the Changing Markets Foundation into what 33 European food retailers are doing to make their farmed fish supply chains more sustainable assesses that three in four have a near total absence of policies sufficiently robust to safeguard the environment and improve animal welfare. The Floundering Around report found that progress was weakest in elimination of wild-caught fish from feed-for-farmed fish. None of the retailers were able to provide a target date to remove such feed from its supply chain. UK-based Tesco and French supermarket Aachen are, however, highlighted as leaders in this area. Tesco has a roadmap for ramping up alternatives in farmed fish feed, and Aachen has plans to ensure 50% of its farmed feed is not from wild-caught fish. The apparel sector is currently on a global warming trajectory equivalent to a 3 Celsius of warming pathway, and pulling that to 1.5 Celsius will require investment of over $1 trillion to improve efficiencies and transition to low-carbon practices. So says a new report from Fashion for Good and the Apparel Impact Institute. $640 billion will need to go into scaling up low-carbon solutions that already exist, such as renewable energy generation and storage, decarbonised transport and building efficiencies. $400 billion will need to be invested in innovation and solutions not yet at scale, including better processing, new generation materials and chemical recycling. The report predicts that the private sector will need to foot the vast majority of the costs, but that there are trillions of dollars already earmarked for green investment that the sector should tap. This would require a realignment of incentives to prioritise more sustainable fashion. Coming up next week is Innovation Forum's biggest event of the year, our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, from the 30th of November to the 2nd of December, and it's going to be an exciting few days. There's still time to join 300 experts from the likes of Nestle, Colgate Palmolive, Mars, Unilever, McDonald's, Kraft Heinz and many more. And the exclusive 10% podcast listener discount still applies. Just use code POD10, P-O-D-10, when you are registering. A few days ago, I spoke with Lord Deben, Chair of the UK's Climate Change Committee and of Sancroft International, and a former Secretary of State for the Environment. We talked about the implications of the new Glasgow Climate Pact, the practical initiatives that are now emerging that point to how the world economy will decarbonise and what business needs to do now to build on the momentum from COP26. The dust is now settling from the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. What's your reaction to the Glasgow Climate Pact? We were hoping for more progress, but were you expecting more progress? Well, one always hopes for more. I mean, that's the nature of the battle we're on. I think it was rather better than I feared. 
not as good as I would hope for. But then that's probably where most of these meetings come down. I think there were some really important things which the press failed to catch hold of. I mean, first of all, the completion of the rule book was a really important thing because it means there are quite a number of countries that will be able to reconsider their ambitions simply because they now know the rules within which they will work. And that will give Alok Sharma a real opportunity over the rest of the year for which Britain is responsible to try to get them on board or further up. The second thing I thought was remarkable was the presence of business. I mean, in past COPs, and I've been to quite a lot of them, including the first one, the the past COPs, business would send their sustainability manager or somebody of that kind. But here there were the chairman and chief executives. There was a remarkable dinner at which the chief of the CBI, not only the chairman, but the chief executive, made speeches which were of a kind you would not have heard from them even a year ago. So I felt that this was the first COP where business really was enthused and infused. I rather got crossed with some of the Greens who kept on talking about how many people from the fossil fuel companies were there. Well, of course they were there because they've actually got to find a way of moving towards a fossil fuel free world. And they ought to be there just to listen to see how very, very urgent it is and how bad some of them are and also how good some of them are. And we should be making a rather more differentiated attitude. So I was very pleased about some aspects of it. Your point around the rule book is interesting. It was mentioned in the context of the Article 6, you know, the rules around carbon markets. That I saw some coverage of. But in general, you're right, there wasn't much coverage of the importance of completing the entirety of the rule book and how that will enable things to go forward. There were some exciting initiatives on how progress can be made, such as the deal whereby the US, UK, France and others pledged a combined $8.5 billion to transition South Africa away from coal. Were there any other deals like that that stood out for you? And is that the sort of thing we're going to have to be seeing, this kind of practical initiative that's going to take us forward, do you think? Well, I mean, there were certain kinds of initiative which I would hope would be more and more important and more and more effective, like the forestry one and the methane one. But there were also a number of initiatives where rich countries pledged to help poor countries to move ahead. And I thought those were very effective and really worthwhile. I mean, we entered the whole discussion with a serious default on Britain's side. The cutting of our aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5 was a disaster. It was wholly wrong. It was morally wrong in any case. But even if you didn't think that, it was stupid because you really can't expect developing countries to take you seriously in what you promise. If you have already cut your aid, contrary to the law and contrary to the election manifesto of the governing party. I thought that was a very, very hard thing for Alok Sharma to overcome. And actually, he did so remarkably, I think largely because of his own personal attraction. He really did create confidence of a sort that I didn't think was possible. That rather quiet and understated individual turned out to be rather a hero in all this. So it overcome a bit of it. But I do 
think the first thing the government's got seriously to think again is that if it really wants to be taken seriously, it must keep its word. It must not break its word. And to kick people who are worse off than yourself when things go wrong for yourself is, it seems to me, to the height of immorality. Sticking points then, from a global perspective, what are the things that are going to be sticking points going forward? Well, I think we really do have to have serious conversations with the two people who have, or three, that have gone backwards, which are Brazil, Indonesia and Mexico, because these are three major countries which really have got worse rather than better. That's largely the character of their presidents, but really the whole of the international effort should be on bringing them into line. We also ought to be very clear that Australia is behaving appalling. And it's no good. We have to be very direct about it. And so I do believe that the government has got to make it clear to Australia that there will be no trading agreements put into operation until Australia accepts the same level of commitment to climate change as we do. Because apart from the fact that they really have got to play their part because they're changing our climate, you know, they often talk as if it's them. It's not them, they're changing my climate, and therefore this is a serious issue. They're also aiding and abetting the Chinese in the unwillingness to stop using coal. And the last thing is... I don't think that the farmers whom we're going to ask to do a lot of things and change a lot of things in order to meet net zero in Britain, I don't think those farmers should be undercut by food coming in from Australia. I mean, New Zealand is also in that category because they've excluded their farmers by a rather curious view that somehow methane doesn't count when it comes to doing the mathematics. Well, again, I think the government has really got to be serious about this and uh, has got to change its mind over those two trade deals. Is there anything else you want the UK government to do in a domestic setting? Well, it's got to go on now doing what it's already started. I was very pleased with the net zero strategy because that meant it moved on another stage. It, we now have to see that implementation on a month-by-month, year-by-year basis. There are two big gaps in it. One is the government does seem to be unwilling to talk about behaviour change, and yet we're all changing our behaviour. There are very large numbers of people who now work at home for two or three days a week. That's a change of behaviour. COVID has changed a lot of behaviour. The fact is we know we can change behaviour, and that's one of the things that we've got to do, and government's got to set an example by the way it behaves and set that example and also make sure that the behaviour change in schools and hospitals in fast food is concerned, all those things need to be done. And the sort of knee-jerk reaction over the need to reduce our meat consumption by between 20 and 30% seemed to me to be, frankly, ignorant, because the truth is we are eating less meat and people understand that. What we ought to be doing is eating better meat, pasture produce meat because we need meat. I mean, the vegans are wrong. We actually need meat because we have to have animals if we're going to have healthy soil and a proper way of growing our plants. So you need that mix, but we need to have better meat and not the sort of mass-produced stuff, which does a great deal of harm. 
So that's a gap. And the other gap in the government's armour, it seems to me, is their failure to produce a land use policy and programme. I mean, all this work was done by Quasi, Aquatang and Bays, and there's precious little sign of DEFRA's contribution. Now, they keep on promising us a white paper and all sorts of other things, but we really do need our farmers to know what the future is for them. It's all very well saying we've done this wonderful thing. We've left the European Union and we're now going to move from production support to support for public good. But if you don't define public goods and if you don't provide people with real understanding of what it will be, how do they plan for it? How do they invest for it? And so we really do need something of that sort. And the truth is, leaving the European Union is almost entirely bad. It's going to make things very, very much more difficult. And it gives our influence a very, very considerable blow. But you may as well try to make some of the things that you might benefit from effective. And the land use is one of those things. We ought to be ahead of the European Union as a result. In fact, we're behind them. The new plans for the European Union are actually better than anything we have detailed so far. So this is a really serious situation and we need to change that pretty quickly. You touch on agriculture there. Agriculture is an example of business sectors that have really had to change their role. And some business leaders have been taking a leadership position at the forefront of the climate debate and some governments have been catching up in some respects. What do you want business to be doing more of now? What are the kind of key things you want to see? Well, I think there are three things. First of all, their commitment to net zero really does have to stand up to measurement and they need to be willing to accept international mechanisms of measurement so that when they say that, it really does mean what they say it means and it does give uh, us confidence in that and it enables us to use that in the, against those businesses that have not so far done it. Second thing that they need to do is to use the peer pressure, which they really do have. I mean, it is time that the big oil companies said to ExxonMobil, I'm sorry, but we are not cooperating with you until you start doing these things properly. Instead of these, I mean, appalling greenwash, which has followed their attempt to try to make people believe that climate change wasn't actually happening. And, and I do think that it's up to the other large companies in the area to say, there are lots of areas that you need our cooperation. We're frankly not doing it until you get yourself into a sensible position. And I think the third thing that uh, business can do is to help the whole industry and indeed government and indeed the third sector to talk about these things in a way which is comprehensible. I mean, they've got wonderful organisations for communications, PR people. And one of our problems is that we can't, it seems to me, very often speak about climate change in the language which ordinary sane people can understand. That's why I've banned the phrase in the Climate Change Committee, I've banned the phrase kilowatt hour, because I don't know what a kilowatt hour is. I can't feel it, I can't touch it, and it doesn't mean anything. So if you say, well, the price will come down by so much per kilowatt hour, you may as well not have spoken. But if you say that your bill could 
be this amount less if we get this right, then that really does make a difference and people can then understand it. So again, I think business can help a huge amount in the way in which we talk, because after all, it has to sell its services and its goods. That's what it does best. And we need to have its help to explain how those services and goods in future will in fact be produced in a way which doesn't cost the earth. And then behind that, the optimism that should come by saying, we have to fight climate change because otherwise there's apocalypse. But in fighting climate change, we get a greener, cleaner and kinder world. And business should be holding up that optimism to the nation and the world, because otherwise people will feel this is all too much trouble. And I want them to recognize that this is not just about the negative of fighting this disaster. It's also about having a world which is better for our children and our grandchildren. I think that in terms of communications, the people in general have got that there's a problem. And now they want to, as you say, see how they're going to get around the problem. And then talking in terms and jargon that they don't understand is not going to help the problem. They want to see what are the practical steps that I can do in my life to make a difference. There was a feature, I think, of the Glasgow meetings that stood out for me was the protests that took place in and around the city, which have been credited with sharpening the focus of the negotiators, which was a point emphasised by Barack Obama during his intervention at COP26. Are you concerned that with a suspected lack of planned protests at COP27 at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt next year, that that sense of urgency will be lost? Well, I do think that the protests are very important. It was very impressive to see that number of people on the streets. More impressive was the extraordinary discipline which they had. I thought it was brilliantly organised. And the way that you kept the Marxist away from the Trotskyites and the, <laughs> the socialists away from other groups. And yeah, actually, everybody was there. So there was a united statement, both politically and religiously and in every other way. I mean, the march, uh, the Catholic march from Edinburgh with other Christian denominations from Edinburgh to Glasgow joining in and having that with this whole collection of what you might call a motley crew of all sorts. But they were so well behaved. And indeed, I talked to one policeman who said, I don't know why the hell we're here. They were from Merseyside, I think, because it's everybody's behaving themselves so well. And that really made a serious impact. It made people feel that these were people who were seriously saying, look, our future is deeply imperiled. It is a question of apocalypse. It really is true. And yet we're optimistic enough that if you do the right things, we can, in fact, save the world. I thought it was really impressive. Now, as far as going to Egypt is concerned, it seems to me that Egypt has got to think quite seriously about this. We all know the situation and we all know the problems which the government of Egypt has got. But I think it would be very foolish if it became characterised as a nation that could not deal with protest. And it seems to me that although protest is the more difficult because of where it is, leave alone the regime and the rest, the fact is that protest about climate change ought to be something that they can accept, whereas I can understand that they don't want protest about their own internal issues, and that's not my business. I know what I think about it, but that's a different issue. So I hope that the Egyptians will take this as an opportunity to show that they can handle properly organised protest, because I think protest is hugely important. 
But in between times, I think the protesters have got to learn something too. It's hugely important that they should bring as much pressure on their governments and their organizations as they can. I mean, I always say to people, no member of parliament in Britain should be able to go to their constituency surgery on a Saturday or Friday night or whenever they have it without at least one young person being there to talk about climate change. I mean, if that doesn't happen, then you will have to say that some of those who are delayers and deniers can say, well, it really isn't public pressure that I told it is. So I want those people to take every advantage of that. And also, wherever they have influence on the backsliders, to insist on it, to insist on firms refusing to buy goods from Brazil, which have been made possible by deforestation. Firms saying to Mexico, if you really want to have the kinds of international reputation that you want, then you must go back to what you were doing. They were one of the leaders under the previous president, one of the places you pointed to, and they've now slipped back. And the same is true about Indonesia. There really is no reason why we shouldn't be bringing pressure. And that's what the international NGO campaigners really ought to be doing in the year between. They have a huge job to help the British government do what the British government has to do. And I want to see the Prime Minister actually reconfirm Alok Sharma and say very clearly that the government doesn't think that COP26 is the end of its duty. It's got a whole year to make sure that COP27 is an even bigger success. There is a sense of momentum coming away from COP26 amongst perhaps disappointment at some of the details of the final deal. How do we harness this going through to COP27 next year? And what will the Climate Change Committee's point of focus be? Well, we are doing a very detailed survey of the outcome, which we will be publishing very soon in the next few days. And then we will be pressing the government to deliver what is most important is to show that it is delivering on its very good promises. I mean, one must not underestimate the degree to which this government has stepped up to the plate, made the kind of commitments which it needed to make. And sometimes, again, I really do get bored with some of the Green campaigners who never say thank you for anything. So it's not surprising that people get fed up with them. You have to say thank you when you've got something that's good and then immediately say, but we want some more. But without the thank you, you don't get the more. So I think the next thing we have to do now is to get the delivery. And that's what the Climate Change Committee will be pressing for in detail, the delivery. And then beyond that, we want this government to use what it is doing to support Alok Chama, make clear that he really does have the support of the whole government in working towards the changes which we need. And I do want this government to take very seriously the fact that it really must walk the walk. So we can't have a coal mine in Cumbria. You really can't start digging coal. And we really do have to look with great care as to whether we are legally obliged to allow any further extension of oil exploration or oil production in the North Sea. Now, we haven't seen the details of what really has been legally promised, and I'm a great believer in defending the rule of law. Because frankly, if we're going to get what we need on climate change, we've really got to get the rule of law way behind us. 
But if there is any way of not doing this, it seems to me that that should be done because we have to accept the International Energy Agency, which says quite clearly that we should be leaving all new products in the ground because we're producing quite enough to deliver what we need to deliver until we become fully fossil free. And that's why one of the immediate things I'd like to see the government do would be to insist that the oil and gas industry show precisely how they are going to produce the diminishing amount that Britain will need up to 2035. Because now the government has accepted, and it's again a very brave acceptance, that we won't be generating with fossil fuels after 2035. Now that that is now the law, so to speak, that's what they have accepted. It's in the sixth carbon budget, which has been passed into the law. It seems the natural thing then is to say to the oil and gas industry, stop wittering about, tell us exactly how you're going to produce it. And only if you show in a very real way that there is no way of producing what we will need on those year, in those years should we allow any further extension of production. And any of this nonsense about how well, we'll produce it at home because it's so much better. That is nonsense. First of all, we are only about the middle of the pack for the carbon cost of production in Britain. So it's not true that we produce it cheaper in carbon terms than the rest of the world. And the second thing that isn't true is that it's no point in saying we're going to produce more at home unless you mean at the same time somebody produces less abroad. Otherwise, you're not doing anything but just increasing the amount. And all this business about home production is a nonsense because we produce and export and we import because some of what we produce is not what we need. It's a different kind of product. So we have this mix. So the idea that somehow or other you're going for British production for some mystical reason of autarky is just not true. And I'm afraid I had a pretty acrimonious debate with the representative of the oil and gas industry in Scotland when the BBC put on a really very good debate, a sort of any questions. And frankly, the answers they gave were not satisfactory. And I think the government's got to recognise that we need to be up there among those who say no more. It's certainly a big change from some perspectives. And the change that stood out for me was Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland, coming out publicly saying that she didn't think that this new potential oil field off the Shetlands should be exploited. And of course, the SNP were a party that were very much wedded to Scotland's oil future when they were advocating for Scottish independence around the 2014 referendum. So that was a significant shift and recognition that simply we can't be taking any more new fossil fuels out of the ground. Are there any further things that you're, you're looking forward to over the next year up to COP27? No, I've just been thinking that it's been 40 years since I first started fighting the battle against climate change. So I'm hoping this is going to be an even better year than the previous ones. Well, let's hope so. Lord Deben, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews and for discounted tickets for the Landscapes and Commodities Conference from the 30th of November. Don't forget the exclusive 10% podcast listener discount with code POD10. That's P-O-D, the numerals 1 and 0. 
I do look forward to meeting podcast listeners during the event. Also look out for the final piece in our coverage of COP26, climate journalist Mike Scott's analysis of the meeting's outcomes and what's next. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next week at the Landscapes and Commodities event, goodbye.